Okay, <clears throat> thank you everyone. So I'm John Montgomery. I'm a senior lecturer at Goldsmiths uh, at the Political Economy Research Center there. Um, so part of the, one of the things that we do at PERC is we have what's called the heretical finance reading group. And we meet uh, on the first Monday of the month, sometimes it's a Tuesday, depending on our teaching commitments. Uh, and we have a great mix of people that come and we read all kinds of books about finance. So we have um, FinTech, which is you know, written by a management consultant. Uh, next month we're reading um, Silas Milner, the George Eliot's book about the gold standards. Uh, we read fiction like The Banker's Daughter or Bonfire of the Vanities. Uh, we read all kinds, all sorts, uh, and it, it's a bit like this group in which we're all very interested in finance. Some people are retired bankers. Uh, one guy works for blockchain uh, in the city and he comes down early, it's on 4.30 in the afternoon. Uh, you know, and so we, we have a, quite a great mix. And um, so part of my kind of reflections on what was critical, how do you, know, how do you critically study finance, comes from this kind of spirit that I got from this group about um, if I were to kind of contrast between what Bill is saying is the oldness of finance versus its sort of newness in the kind of fintech age. So for the first question about kind of what's the notion of critical, um, I'm going to start off with something very funny Matt Watson said. I'm sure most of you know Matt Watson. <clears throat> you don't think of him as being hilarious, but he is really funny. <laughs> <laughs> They're just really long. <laughs> <laughs> you got to wait for it. Delivery. Um, but he, he just said, you know, about critical political economy, he said, you know, let's just imagine for a minute an academic that would claim, actually, my research uh, is an uncritical acceptance of the status quo, right? I mean, it beggars belief. Nobody would ever say that, right? We, we all believe we're critical in some degree. It's sort of why we get into academics. So what does it really mean to be critical um, is a, a kind of a very open question, right? And we, can, and we can fight it out in many different ways, but uh, I'm not interested in fighting. So as much as I kind of have... Uh, a stake in, 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 in being a critical scholar, I, I'm also not really comfortable with notions of critical that is effectively a form of brand management. I'm this kind of critical. Um, you know, oh, Foucault, that's so old critical. I'm the new critical. Oh, no, I'm a Marxist critical. I'm old school critical. You know, so it's that kind of how do you brand management, you, you know, brand management in your kind of forms of critical scholarly inquiry. You know, I kind of take a rather simplistic view in terms of my study of finance in which kind of my critical studies comes from a normative commitment to kind of uh, expose the power relations um, of finance with hopefully the end goal of ending them in any way that I can. Um, and really in terms of studying finance and financialization, this normative commitment is really about balancing, for me anyway, two uh, different aspects. One is the understanding of the technical aspects of, of finance. Uh, and uh, the, remind me the name of your research center on payments and... Uh, Institute for Money, Technology and Financial Inclusion. Yes, yeah. Institute for Money, Technology and Financial Inclusion. And, and the work, I mean, I've come across a number of the students and people from that center at various conferences. And I mean, the level of technical engagement is absolutely superb. And, but it's never ever done in a way that's just like, look at all the interesting things I know. It's always done with this kind of, let's talk about what these sophisticated payment systems mean to the reconfiguring of power. Yeah. And, and that's where I think the balance is right. A lot of finance's power is in its opacity. Okay, it is in, that is an opacity in language. So again, the kind of alphabet soup of ABS, 
CDO, CDO squared, you know, all the various, I mean, it just goes on MBS, RMBS, blah, blah, blah. You know, it just keeps going and going. Uh, but it's not just in the language, it's also the opacity of the legal frameworks that, that finance uses that are often, you know, nationally based, but can crisscross the globe across different jurisdictions uh, and moving at different times. And it is precisely through this opacity and in, in, in the use of expert knowledge within finance, right up from the, the day trader to the central banker, that creates a real uh, barrier around power and its power uh, of finance to act. Um, but it's not just kind of the contemporary power of finance. What I'm also very interested in is, is entrenched institutional power. So again, if we're thinking about uh, Silas Milner and George Eliot, you know, way back in the, the early 1800s, and the power of the gold standard, right? The power of finance is um, well entrenched. Uh, in our PPE program at Goldsmiths, we take the students every year for a walking tour of the city. And we learn about how the city of London was set up by the Romans quite deliberately in this part, not further down where Westminster was, how it was a trading port, how the city of London is a corporation, how it, it took the wrong side in the Civil War, it took the wrong side in a lot of battles and yet it stayed, how its power was deeply entrenched within the guilds and the, um, the, the, you know, the different companies, what are they called again? They're not guilds, they're with symbols, Goldsmiths was one. Anyway, there's a funny word for it, but basically guilds. Um, and uh, like the Mercers, for example, you know, how it wasn't always just money. It was a, a very close connection with industry. Uh, you know, when you understand that, that finance has a history uh, and, it, you know, it's not all just this flash newness. Uh, it is a deeply entrenched institutional power, but also there is a vested interest. Finance is a vested interest that has a voice in every aspect of political economy. If we think just in the British parliamentary structure, um, the city romancer has oversight over every single law passed in the parliament of this country and has the only right to veto. That is not even a power the Queen has. Also, the Queen cannot enter the city of London without permission. She is met by the Lord Mayor of the city of London with a, with a knife at her heart and she must be given permission to enter. Okay, so their power is both symbolic, but should not be underestimated. So, um, but that is also uh, the power of finance that is both technological and cultural in the, in the contemporary age. The very fact that when we give money, we look for a return on our investment speaks to a cultural shift uh, in which the language and logics of finance are kind of deeply imbued within uh, our society, within our kind of financialized society. So when I think about kind of the critical studies of finance, I want to kind of follow uh, Zygmunt Bowman here and using the kind of gardening metaphor in which we seek rather than a kind of uh, gatekeeping metaphor where we're seeking to kind of sow seeds, to tend and nurture to our crop, to identify weeds uh, and pests and get rid of them. Uh, but always the hope is to, is to reap a rich harvest, right? So... That, I, I believe that that's more a spirit of critical finance than uh, one that says, well, if you're, if you're doing fintech, that's not, we, we like debt securities. Or <laughs> if it's not global and it's like a local credit union, that doesn't count because finance is global finance. So the kind of idea that, that we're trying to find commonality. And in the second question that I was sort of given about the challenges of doing uh, critical research in finance, I wanted to um, 
give the example that I've sort of talked about it in a couple spaces. Sorry, Chris, you already heard this one the other week, which is about kind of the intersectionality and uh, the moral economy of finance. And it, this is my own personal struggle. I don't have any answers, by the way, uh, in terms of my research in finance and, and some of the issues around, in particular, race and gender, uh, and really exposing the power relations of finance in that context. So on the one hand, um, when we think about the kind of intersectionality of finance, looking at, at gender and power relations, and we look to the history of finance and the big global structures, some things become immediately clear. Uh, Number one is the gold standard. I mean, this to me is the litmus test of um, how conscious and, 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 and sensitive people are to the kind of racial dynamics of global finance. So if you believe the international political economy starts with the, the implementation of the gold standard, do we know why the gold standard was implemented? The transatlantic slave trade. How do you uh, deal with the problem of money when you are trading bodies across jurisdictions, across the Atlantic, taking them from one place, trading your a Spanish slave trip ship, taking from West Africa, you're going across uh, the sea, but you end up in an English port or a French port, and you want to sell your cargo, and then you want to take the ship back. So it's about uh, the commensurability of money, about how you are trading the commodity of human beings. Sometimes it was in, in kind, sometimes you were taking goods back. And then how would you take the goods and then get paid? There were, of course, insurance contracts. We know this again from the, from the city of London, how the insurance industry grew up around the transatlantic slave trade and the insuring of cargo. Well, the gold standard was created specifically to address the fundamental frictions and um, choke points, let's put it that way, the easier language, the choke points that were created by this globalized economy that was built on the back of uh, imperialist, colonialist expansion, and but particularly the problem of the slave trade. So, you know, on that big historical structure, I mean, again, we can we can see a really clear pattern of, of of racialized power. More in the more contemporary setting, we can see the third world debt crisis. Again, uh, you know, the great Bretton Woods. Don't we all in the global north love the Bretton Woods? Oh, we wish we could go back, right? Okay, except for not a single colonial country was given any representation uh, in New Hampshire. Uh, it's okay. Uh, your colonial overlords will represent your interests. Don't worry, little ones. <laughs> so uh, what happens in that time is we then, you know, with decolonization, we have the third world debt crisis in which we basically justify uh, financial exploitation on a global level by saying, well, they're third world countries. You know, they, they, uh, they borrowed, you know, they borrowed... Uh, the wrong kind of contracts, US dollars, the, the economies expanded, you know, it was all very racialized language that sort of forgave imperialism and never asked once if a banker over lent. Uh, so again, the big historical structures, we can see it quite clearly. And even on the national level, and this is where I kind of come to it when I be began looking at race in the subprime mortgage crisis, was that we can see quite clearly on a nation state level, especially in the United States, we have very detailed sort of postal code level analysis of the type of loans that are given out. The real stratification of the terms of credit along gender lines and along racial lines, but also geographically in the kind of neighborhoods that you live in. But what be became a challenge for me was when I was researching the sub subprime crisis was Something that I sort of came upon, uh, upon oh, by chance in, in this kind of internet discussions and, and, and newspaper stories um, about the kind of 
argument around the subprime mortgage crisis was created. We all know the story, right? The narrative of overlending to urban city centers in the United States. Black communities, Latino communities were targeted for subprime loans. They're the ones, it's their fault, right? You know, we, we, they overborrowed beyond their means to buy a house. And to me, it always, it smelled bad from the beginning, okay? It smelled like the welfare queen story of Bill Clinton sort of wrapped up in a, you know, now the welfare queen, she drove her Cadillac down the road and decided she wanted a four bedroom apartment. And that's how we can explain the entire global financial system basically lighting on fire, right? So doing a bit more digging again with the opacity and the technical arguments around finance, I began looking at the loan books, the securitized loan products that were um, sold. Now, if you go onto the SEC, uh, Security Exchange Commission website, you can download all 25,000 pages of each securities offering. And they have a schedule in which they break down the age, the maturity, uh, they have different kind of demographic characteristics. And as I was doing that, one of the things that really struck me was actually there wasn't a lot of uh, African-American or Latino borrowers in these loan pools. I mean, even by their own calculation. Um, and then when we began to dig deeper into the people, you know, communicating with other people that were doing the same, they said, well, actually, the bigger problem with predatory lending, which became the kind of big story about predatory lending, was not that they were targeting racial minorities, is that people with adequate credit ratings for prime mortgages were being sold subprime products, you know, high cost products with balloon payments and so on. But really, when you looked at it, how they were being sold through mortgage brokers was like, get yourself a free golf, uh, two, two rounds of golf on us if you pick this loan product. So they were being given teasers and different sort of promotions. And so people were taking out these really expensive and uh, you know loans with APRs that changed over time and balloon payments and so on. But actually, if you sort of broke it down, it became really clear that it was actually like a lot of, I don't know, which not the cleverest of white people, <laughs> basically buying subprime loans that blew up in their faces, and then they were also the ones with the highest default rates. So. That immediately sort of struck me as something I needed to look more into. So I began looking into the survey of consumer finances. Yeah. And uh, what I found there, which I think, you know, is, is sort of where I'll conclude, is that this really interesting debate about racial identification in micro surveys. So that in the United States, um, especially among middle class uh, Latino uh, or Latino, you say Latinx now? meaning both male and female, Latino, Latinas, uh, and uh, African-American, they do not self-identify by racial category, precisely because they live in a highly racist society that basically, you know, if you're middle class, you don't want to identify in a survey as being, you know, I am African-American, I am non-white, this is the one about the Americans I love, right? Everywhere else in the world, a Latino is a white person, but not in America. That's a, a, a white, a non-white Latino or yeah. something like that. They have some bizarre classification. Um, so that they don't actually self-identify in the survey by racial category, precisely because of the, st the social stigma attached. So it became very difficult on the micro level to actually see what is the exposure of debt on a kind of racial level. Uh, and also it kind of brought up some really important kind of ethical questions around um, can we understand can we understand racism within finance as something that we ascribe to others, right? Because ultimately, isn't the 
the person we should be asking about, or the or this population we should be asking about racism and finance, the lenders, not, uh, not the borrowers. Um, so what kind of, you know, in the end, this unpacking this whole kind of uh, bubble around, you know, what was the real kind of racialized story of the subprime crisis, what occurred to me that the power that finance exercised in the subprime crisis was the ability to establish the narrative. And either you agreed with it or you were critical of it. So you either agreed that, yeah, actually, you knew things were going wrong when they began uh, issuing mortgages to people in, in, in inner city U.S., or you opposed it and you said, well, actually, uh, this was a form of financial inclusion and this wasn't the real problem. But what that, that establishing that narrative did was immediately confine the terrain of how you could oppose finance. And it, and it really led it down to something very, very small and, and it obscured the much, much bigger picture. So if I conclude with my kind of four points about my ethic, my kind of critical research ethic in finance. The first one is to, is to look at the power of finance, financial knowledge, but also the power of academic knowledge and how that's something in and of itself. We are not powerless agents in all of this. The second point is to be conscious of the boundaries, the marginalizations, and the silences that finance enacts in order to have, in order to cultivate its power. And for me, how I try to do that is to look at the human experience, but also to listen to human voice and what actual humans tell us about their experiences of finance, in order not to fall into the trope of kind of good credit, bad debt type uh, debates. Thirdly, to look at the relationships of finance and power and its differentials. So how is finance differentiated across society? And fourthly, to acknowledge my own situation, situatedness as a researcher. So my own, my own power, again, as a researcher, as an academic who has time to go through SEC filings, has time to go through the survey of consumer finances, has the resources to engage in these questions, and to, to engage in a kind of ethic and questioning practices that looks at power and hierarchy uh, in, in, in very concrete ways. But also my own, and to conclude, I have a kind of, I believe in a strong ethical commitment to not just do uh, critical finance for my own benefit, you know, for my own promotions, my own publications, uh, and so on, but also to kind of act against, to act towards the ending of the power of finance, but also in some way to give back to those who help and facilitate my research. <laughs>